we can dismiss our younger children to Children's Church at this time. The rest of you will want to get out your sermon outline. It says the burial of Christ on it. We are at the very end of John 19. Before we get started, I uh, had the privilege this past week of preaching at Patrick Henry College, and uh, that was a a great time. I really enjoyed it. And uh, uh, Mike Cooks introduced me there and mentioned my military background and how pleased he was that I hadn't made him drop and give me 50 yet. I told him I didn't realize that was one of the options, so things are going to change around here. No, I had a great time. It was very gracious of them uh, to invite me, and it was uh, good to be there and and represent Potomac Hills and put the name of uh, our church there in front of the student body. Anyways, back to John 19. We're at the very end, John 19, uh, verses 38 through 42. And uh, this is that strange time between the cross and the resurrection. It's uh, between the momentous event of Good Friday and the momentous event of Easter Sunday. And uh, so let's read this passage. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus but secretly for fear of the Jews. Asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for bringing us these eyewitness details. Thank you for reminding us of the importance of what may be viewed as an obscure passage. We pray now that you would focus our hearts and our minds on your word and your spirit and our Lord Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen. In 19th century England... There's a small town that once a year had a village party and all the families gathered in the town square to sing and there's a gift for each one of the children who live there. And there's one young man in the town 
who's mentally retarded. And because of his handicap, he is the victim, sadly, of many cruel jokes. But the trick played on him this day is the cruelest of all. As the pile of gifts got smaller and smaller, his face grew longer and longer. He's really too old for a gift now, but he doesn't know that. And his childlike heart is heavy as he watches everyone receive packages except for himself. And finally, there's one package left. And it has his name on it. And his eyes dance as he looks at this brightly wrapped package. His excitement soars as he tears away the ribbon. His fingers race to uh, rip open uh, the package and tear away the paper. And as he opens the box, his heart sinks. It's empty. The package was attractive. The ribbons were colorful. And the outside was enough to get him uh, into the inside. But when he got to the inside, the box was empty. Ever been there? Lots of people have. A young mother weeps silently into her pillow all her life. She has dreamed of marriage. If only I could have a home. If only I could have a husband and a house. And so now she's married. The honeymoon has long since ended. The tunnel she dug out of one prison has led to another. And her land of Oz has become a land of dirty diapers, carpools, and bills. She shares a bed with a husband she doesn't love. She listens to the still sleep of a child she doesn't know how to raise. And she feels the sand of her youth slide through her fingers. A middle-aged businessman sits in his plush office staring blankly out the window. There's a red sports car waiting for him in the parking lot. There's a gold ring on his finger and a gold card in his wallet. His name's on a walnut door and a walnut desk. It's well known. He should be happy. He possesses the package he set out to get when he stood at the bottom of the ladder looking up. But now that he has what he wants, he doesn't want it anymore. Now that he's at the top of the ladder, he sees that it's leaning against the wrong wall. He left his bride in the dust of his ambition. The kids that call him daddy don't call him daddy anymore. They have a new one now. And though he has everything that success offers, he would trade it all in a heartbeat to have a home to go home to tonight. Teenager lies in a hospital bed staring at the ceiling. I've counted the holes in the ceiling tiles a hundred times. They say I'll be in this cast for six weeks. They say I'm lucky to be alive. His voice shook in spite of Attempting to sound stable, was barely audible through the oxygen mask. The skin on his forehead and nose was scraped away. They keep asking me what I remember. I I don't even remember getting in the car, much less driving it. I never tried crack before. I guess I tried too much. I'll think before I ever try it again. In fact, it looks like I'm going to have plenty of time for thinking now. No games, no noise, no flashing lights. Your dreams have come true, but instead of letting you sleep, they keep you awake. 
What do you do at a time like that? Where do you go when the parade stops? You've gotten the package you wanted, but when you finally got it open, it's empty. What do you do when the river of life sucks the sandy foundation of your world out from under you? And I have few doubts that that must have been what Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus felt like when it came to care for the body of Jesus. It was supposed to be great. It was supposed to be the inauguration of a new era. It was supposed to change everything. Jesus would make everything different. And now he was gone. Crucified. Dead. And now it was time to be buried. And they looked around. And everyone was gone. The disciples had disappeared. The followers had faded away. And Joseph of Arimathea must have been wondering... What was going on? Someone should do something. And that brings us to our text this morning. There are a few things we need to note here. And the first is that these two men had been driven by fear. Look at verse 38. Driven by fear. First blank there, I think, in your outline. Verses 38 and 39. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. We learn in the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all of which mentioned Joseph of Arimathea in connection with the burial of our Lord. And we learn there that Joseph was a member of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council. And we know that Nicodemus was also a member of the Sanhedrin. Luke tells us that Joseph hadn't consented to the unjust treatment of Jesus by the Sanhedrin. We're also told that he was a rich man, which accounts for his having a a garden tomb to make available for the burial of Jesus. Mark and Luke describe him as a man who was looking for the kingdom of God. He was a disciple, but secretly for the fear of the Jews. Now, if you go all the way back to John 12, which I think was like August, um, The Apostle John had really hard words for those who believed in Jesus but wouldn't confess him openly for fear of the Jews. In John 12 it says, Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, (coughs) but for fear of the Pharisees they did not confess it. So they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. We have two secret disciples. Joseph of Arimathea, we're told, was a secret disciple. Remember, Nicodemus came at night where he wouldn't be seen. But whatever their timidity had been before, and now Joseph comes into the clear with a very brave and public act. It's an identification with Jesus 
at the very point where it would seem pointless to make such an identification. Why risk exposing yourself to the contempt of your peers when your leader has just died so dishonorably? What's to be gained by that? But when the other disciples had fled, these men came out in the open with their allegiance to Jesus at just the time they had nothing to gain by doing so. I mean, it's just conjecture, but you know, perhaps Joseph felt that uh, he'd paid too little honor to Jesus during his life, and now he should discharge the debt that he hadn't paid when he should have. We don't know. The Bible doesn't say. Ordinarily, men who are executed for sedition or treason, as such as Jesus was, at least technically, would have been buried in a burial site reserved for criminals located outside the city. And it was perhaps because Joseph was a member of the Sanhedrin and he had that extra pull that he had access to Pilate, was able to go to Pilate, and Pilate agreed to let him have the body. And now Joseph is joined by Nicodemus, whose credentials are more clearly established in the gospel. And one wonders where these two were when the Sanhedrin voted for Jesus' death. It's possible since their sympathies with Jesus were probably known that they weren't informed of the hurriedly arranged meeting since only a majority vote was required. Again, we don't know. The text just doesn't tell us. But if Joseph supplies the tomb for Jesus, Nicodemus supplies the embalming spices. Myrrh and aloes were used for embalming about this time. And yet, of course, the bringing myrrh reminds us, recalls the wise men's gift to the baby Jesus years before. But there's one final thing here, and we can't miss it. And that is, this is a king's death. Joseph of Arimathea asked Pontius Pilate's permission to bury the body of Jesus. And the point that John seems to be drawing your attention to is the amount of spices they bring. He could have said, and he brought spices, but he specifically mentions myrrh and aloes and that they bring about 75 pounds. And whatever the exact amount was, it was an amount fit for a king. This is far more than is required for an ordinary burial, and that's the point. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, these two secret come-by-night disciples, and I can tell you there are sermons on that. There are lots of sermons on that. But now they come. Now they understand. And they emerge from the shadows now. They come out of shadow lands now. And it's no accident that Jesus' death has the effect of moving Joseph and Nicodemus to abandon their secret discipleship as they boldly unite to identify with Jesus and work together in his service. In other words, right there at the foot of the cross, the nucleus of the new community is already forming. The mission of the church under the leadership of the risen Christ is already foreshadowed. And at this moment, they declare such courage and such determination because they now see. 
Whatever held them back before, they're not holding back anymore. And it's only out of love for Christ. Out of love that's generated at the cross. Because now they're drawn by love. Look at verse 40 to 42. They're drawn by love. It says, So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Our text, our chapter, ends with, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. The proximity of the tomb is important because the Sabbath is about to begin and the work of burial needed to be completed before the Sabbath began. And the fact that they used a brand new tomb would also be important three days later when at the resurrection there were no complications caused uh, or created by the presence of other bodies in the tomb. And the scripture tells us that the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, was made like us in every way. He was in every way a true and authentic human being. And apart from sin, he lived a real human life, just as we live ourselves. And then he died. And his death was like no other human death in one way. It served to redeem the people of God. A people no one can number and grant them entrance into eternal life. But in its physical sense, in its physical nature, it was just the same as any other human death. As a result of the trauma he suffered, the dehydration, the asphyxiation that resulted from the position of his body on the cross, and no doubt as a result of the tremendous stress placed upon his body by the emotional agony which he went through, an agony which no other human being has ever really understood. His heart gave out and he died. His breath departed from his body. His brain ceased all its functions. Everything came to a complete and final stop. And he therefore belongs unmistakably to the company of the dead. No doubt in recording this, John has an eye, since this is many years later, as an eye towards an early heresy in his day, the Doceticists, who denied the true humanity of Jesus and denied the genuineness of his death. So John wants to be absolutely clear that Jesus really did die. And then some good men buried him in the same way they would have buried any other man or woman whom they loved and admired as they had come to love and admire Jesus of Nazareth. And through the ages, the wicked and the godly alike have been buried in much the same way, in tombs cut out of rock or in holes dug out of the ground, same way most people are still buried today. But what is clear is that the Lord's burial represented not the last stage of his humiliation, but the first stage of his exaltation. The beginning of his triumph. Uh, his triumph, the beginning of his vindication. And that triumph and vindication was known at that moment only in heaven, not on earth. But at that moment, he died on the cross. The Lord was alive. 
in heavenly glory. And what must have been boundless joy. He was there in heaven at the very moment these two men were carefully and reverently laying his body in that garden tomb. The very moment his enemies were basking in the thought that they'd finally gotten rid of their enemy. He's being hailed in heaven as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And Sunday morning, that silence on earth would be broken and the news of his triumph brought to all mankind. But in the meantime, earth must wait to learn what heaven already knows. And as the New Testament and the remainder of its pages will make a large point of saying what was true in the Lord's case will be true for everyone who trusts in Him. His death is the pattern for our death. His burial, the meaning of His burial, is the meaning of our burial. The nature of the days that we too must wait between death and resurrection will mean for us what they meant for Him. The Apostle Paul puts it plainly in Romans 6. He says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? The topic here is not baptism, it's union with Christ. He says, We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And because we are in him, because all that he did, he did for us in our place, on our behalf, we can see ourselves in him and in each stage of his life and his death. (coughs) We can see ourselves in his righteous life because that righteous and holy life was lived for us that it might become ours, that it might be imputed to us or reckoned to us when we believe in Jesus Christ. His death was our death because he died in our place and on our behalf, suffering in our stead the righteous verdict of God's holy justice against our sins. And so his burial was for us. Because in him, by faith in him, the same burial with the same meaning, will become our experience when we die. It's a great mystery, but it is also, biblically, an absolute certainty. I have to confess to you that early in my Christian life, while I knew this to be true, it wasn't a truth that wielded great power and influence in my life. I mean, I was glad to know that, you know, uh, in Christ, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, and that it's better by far to be in heaven. I wasn't particularly finding, interested in finding out a whole lot more about it at that time. And death was primarily, to me, a fairly vague idea. But not anymore. I have stood at too many graves over the years. The graves of adults, the graves especially of the elderly, and the graves of some children. I've stood at their graves, and now the thought of my own death and burial doesn't seem so far away. Maybe it's because I'm turning 50 in a couple months, I don't know. 
But now it seems to me a thing marvelous beyond words that our Lord Jesus was also buried and that he descended into the grave and by doing so sanctified, made holy the graves of all who would die believing in his name. And by being buried, carrying us and our salvation with him into the grave and then rising again, he gives to every Christian the certain hope that his or her grave would be as the Savior's was. Joy unspeakable and full of glory for the soul and rest for the body in anticipation of the great day of the Lord. Think about the generations of God's elect had to rise one after the other. The gospel had to be preached throughout the whole world. Throughout the ages, the Spirit of God had to work faith in the hearts of countless men and women, boys and girls, one by one, uniting them to Jesus Christ and putting into their possession all that Christ had won for them. And while all this is taking place, believers, generation after generation, died and were buried. And the end could not come until all are gathered in. And the price of God's concern that none would be lost who will be saved was that preceding generations of saints must wait until all is fulfilled, must wait in their graves. The Christian grave is a living witness that God will lose none of his people. He will not call an end until all the sheep have heard Christ's voice and followed him. And this is the thought that the author of the letter to Hebrews concludes his great chapter on faith, Hebrews 11. After going through that chapter, and he mentions so many of the heroes of faith, Noah and Abraham and Sarah and Moses and on and on. All people who are made to wait for the consummation of all things, made to wait for the vindication before the world, made to wait for the better resurrection and the better country. That chapter ends, Hebrews 11. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Someday we will all rise together when the Lord comes for us. And that will be an amazing day. But that's still to come. Right now, in this text, that hasn't happened yet. For Joseph and Nicodemus, that's not now. Now there's a king that needs to be buried. And they will take their stand with their king. They take their stand, do you see, with a dead man. They take their stand with a dead man because they realize he's the king. He's the king, and he is worthy of a king's burial. And that's what this passage is calling for, isn't it? That's what John is doing here. He writes this in order that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, and that by believing we might have life in his name. That you align yourself, that you join yourself with him, the king. The king of kings and the Lord of lords. He has gone to the Christ and has died and is put in a tomb. And I don't, I don't remember. Sunday, I think, he'll come out of the tomb. 
And we'll talk about the resurrection and the glory of it. But now he lies in a tomb for the likes of you and for me. That's how much he loves us. That's how much he loves you. Part of our creed, isn't it? Crucified, dead, and buried. Wesley Ulrich is a uh, mission of the world, an MTW missionary. And uh, for years, he's a, he's a doctor, medical doctor, and he's been a doctor at the Anor TB Hospital in Mafrak, Jordan. The Bedouins of the Middle East still suffer from tuberculosis. And the missionary hospital there has had a, a long and wonderful ministry combining medical care with Christian witness. Wesley Ulrich does full-time what we enable Marcy to do sometimes. Uh, and in this particular newsletter, as uh, most missionaries, they send out newsletters and you know they get published and stuff, but he tells the story of one particular Bedouin man, the story of Talak. And he writes, The story of Talak came to a close some three months ago. Now, he wrote this in 2000. It was published in 2001. So this happened in 2000. He says, Talak was in his 70s when he first came to us some 10 years ago. It would have been 1990. As a young married shepherd from near the Iraqi border many years ago, Talak killed a man who was attempting to steal his sheep. He spent seven years in prison for his crime, lost his family, and wound up spending the next 20 years or so alone, bearing a personal burden of immense guilt. He lived in a tent and he tended a few sheep, and then things got worse. He contracted TB from who knows where and came to the Anor Hospital for treatment. It was here, though, that he heard about Jesus and how he forgives sins. And one night the Lord himself came to Tulak and forever took his guilt away. And he was cured of his TB, and he hesitated not a whit in proclaiming his freedom in the Lord. We saw Tulak two or three times a year after that. He was always thin and quiet, And he was always willing to tell others his story about victory over guilt through Jesus Christ. And then late one morning, as we were feverishly seeing patients in the clinic, the ambulance came from the eastern district of Ruashid. The ambulance pulled in with an emergency transfer. We couldn't believe our eyes when we found it to be Talak. For several years, he had been battling pneumonia. Abu Steve, our senior male nurse, Abu is simply Arabic for father. Abu Steve, our senior male nurse, who was very close to him, cleaned him up, got him comfortable, fed, and in bed. And at 2 a.m. the next night, Anja, the nurse on duty, called to say Talak had breathed his last. Abu Steve and I went immediately to the hospital, washed him, and wrapped him in a clean white sheet in preparation for the funeral. We were glad that the Lord had brought him to the place where he, like Hagar, the matron of his heritage, could say, I have seen him 
who sees me. And we have been privileged to see both the beginning and the end of his pilgrimage. Now, as Christians, we hear of this good man's death as good news in Christ. But in fact, the story ends with the old man being wrapped in a white sheet, being prepared to be laid in a grave in the earth. Where is the victory, the happiness, the satisfaction in that? Tulak's Muslim friends wouldn't find triumph or victory in his burial. They wouldn't regard his being laid in the ground as the triumphant end of his pilgrimage. Where can we find the certainty that it is, and not for Tulak only, but for you and for me, for anyone who believes in Jesus Christ and walks with him in this world? I'll tell you where you can find that certainty. Long ago, another man died and was laid in a grave. And just like Tulak, and just like every other Christian who has lived and died in this world, he was laid in a grave, but three days later, he came out of that grave alive. And mortality had put on immortality, or as the Apostle Paul put it in his great chapter on graves and on the resurrection of the dead, 1 Corinthians 15. We read the first half as our responsive reading this morning. But he says there, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, and then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. And ever since, those who trust in that man, Jesus Christ, have had the confidence that their graves will be as his was a place of temporary rest while we await the day of Christ's return, the resurrection of the dead, and the entrance of the people of God into the world of boundless joy. That's what Jesus did. And he did it for you. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Heavenly Father, this is a passage that's easy to read over, to discard it as just a few facts. But Lord, we are reminded that what is true for Jesus in his death and burial is true for us. It's true for those who've gone before us and it's true for those who will follow us, all of whom are in Christ. Lord, let us ask ourselves the question, is it true for me? Is what Christ's death and burial and resurrection signifies, is that true for me? Is that what my death and burial and resurrection will be like? Lord, give us the confidence of the Apostle Paul that as he was, we shall be. Give us the faith that we often lack to believe that Jesus' burial was not a sign of a desperate end, but a sign of a glorious beginning. 
Give us the faith to believe. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand and <clears throat> sing That's the new song we're teaching. You gave your life away. You guys sounded great on it the first time this morning. Let's sing the second verse. sinless life yet you were crucified you bought our freedom on the cross forsaken for our sin you died and rose again Jesus you are the Lamb of God you gave you gave your life away 